for the choir singing and for the songs that we've sung together. And, and uh, it is a joy to stand uh, in the congregation in both services alike and look out across uh, the room and seeing people lifting a hand in praise or lifting their voice in song and then being able to know the burden that they're carrying while they're singing and know that um, God is faithful in the midst of burdens and he's in the midst of pain. And uh, um, we pray for you and rejoice in the fact that God is faithful to us. Amen. And uh, it's uh, an encouragement to my heart to watch you sing. And so don't ever think that just the musicians are the ones ministering to you, but you are ministering back this direction as well. And you're an encouragement to us. Um, <clears throat> we're going to continue our series in the, on the subject of the church. And a couple of weeks ago, we launched our series on the church. And we've entitled our series, uh, The Church Upon This Rock. And we started in Matthew 16, and we began to unpack uh, that Jesus Christ is that foundation upon which the church is built. And apart from him, there is no other foundation. And that is our hope. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he is calling people to himself. We saw that the church is not a building, it's a people. And God is calling people to himself, and he is doing that work. And then um, we, last week, Pastor Caleb unpacked for us uh, Ephesians chapter number one, and we begin to see how he does that work of calling people to himself. And we saw the threefold work of a triune God, that God the Father is the one that chose us and adopted us into the family. And we see the Son has redeemed us, and then we see the Spirit is sealing us into the day of redemption. And we see all of those things working together, and he's forming us, this church, for his glory and for his purpose, and in the church we see him magnified, and that's what we're supposed to see. And then this week I want to take us to chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we're going to look in chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we're going to talk about the mystery that is the church. Now, we have a lot to cover this morning, and so I'm going to just ask you to patiently follow with me as we go through this this morning. Um, as a church, before we read together though, we want to be prayerful of our country at this time, and asking God to give guidance uh, to our country. How many of you understand this morning that our only hope rests in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's where we put our rest. And so let me, let me encourage you not to be unsettled. Uh, don't be fearful. Don't be nervous. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we can be obedient and trust God. And he's in control this morning. And so we rest in that. If you found your place in Ephesians chapter 3, let's stand together in honor of the word of God. I'm going to read and make some commentary as we read through this, uh, this morning, beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 3. And uh, let's begin there in verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Notice that he is for Gentiles. That's important. If you've, ha if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you were. Now, the word dispensation can throw us a little bit here. The word dispensation literally means as stewardship or the administration over. Uh, that's all he's talking about here, that he's been given an administration or a stewardship. Paul was commissioned to go with this message of the gospel to the Gentiles. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And by the way, that's the purpose of reading, is reading so we can understand. And so he said, when you read this, you will understand which in other ages was not made known unto the Son of Men, 
as is now revealed unto the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And we see the word here, the mystery. That word mystery is not something that is unknowable. It's not something that can't be understood, but it is something that was not completely understood before that has now been unfolded, and we can look back and see it now and understand what it is. And so that's what this word mystery is talking about. And he says in verse number 7, he said, Whereof I am made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me, who am less than least of all the saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make known and to make all men see, rather, what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God and created all things by Christ Jesus to the intent now that in the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith in him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the word of God. Lord, I pray, Father, that this morning uh, what is said would be able to be received by the people that hear it. Lord, I pray there be one here today under the sound of my voice that does not know you as their personal Savior, that, Father, something said today, would stir them to want to move toward that relationship today and that, Father, you would draw them to you. And Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts today. Father, we feel our inadequacy. Uh, We understand that, Lord, unless you do the work, all is vain. And we trust you to do that work in us and through us this morning. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. Be seated there if you would. So this morning, I I do want to ask you as we walk through this to be intentional about sitting up and and listening close. Um, Shake yourself awake, put your thinking cap on if I could ask you to do that. I think a lot of times we can make the mistake of coming to church and and the tone maybe of coming to church is, hey, sit back, relax, and enjoy yourself. Um, And that's okay. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy yourself, but I would like for you to sit up, pay attention, and think this morning and to think with me. And to put our minds into action and and to put our thinking caps on as we walk through this. Now, when we look at the whole of Scripture, what I want you to see this morning is that it has always been about God's glory through the redemption of man. That God was being glorified through the redemption and the purposes of God in redeeming men to themselves. God created man in his purpose and in his image for his glory and for his good. As a matter of fact, if we were to go all the way back to the beginning of time, and it's interesting, as I'm walking over here, I can't help but think about the PA booth right now. I told them this morning I was going to be moving a lot. And so the first hour, they, they said, Pastor, you almost got away from us a few times. So they said they got me now. So I'm going to give them a chance to catch up with me. Are we good? All right, good. I'm getting the thumbs up. But in the beginning of time, if we were to mark this side of the stage, the beginning of time, and the history is moving in a direction uh, away from the beginning to a culmination, we believe history is going somewhere. We don't believe it's cyclical. Uh, It's heading in a direction. But in the beginning of time, God created man and woman, and he placed them in a garden. And he gave them his rule. And what we see is God's people under God's rule and God's place. 
He had his purpose and his plan for them. He created them and he gave them roles that they were to follow. And he gave them a job to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. All of these things were given to God's people under God's place and God's rule. This was his plan. But how many of you understand that didn't last long? And very quickly in, man rebelled against God, and he stepped out of God's place. And he stepped, or he stepped out from under God's rule, and because he defied God's rule, he lost that place that God had made for him. And now man is on a journey, and man is now sinful and broken on the inside. But even in this moment, and it's a powerful thing, God looked at Adam and Eve, and he said, Adam, Eve, the ground is cursed for your sake. Eve, uh, the enmity with the serpent is going to be there. He said, however, there is going to come a day when the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman. The head of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the serpent will bruise the heel of your seed. This is a promise that one day everything that went wrong in the garden was going to be made right. This is an amazing picture here of what is coming. And so we see a promise given. But Adam couldn't keep what he was given in the garden. And man comes along a little while later and we see uh, Noah step on the scene. And Noah was given some promises of God. And the Bible says this about Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now make something very clear, he didn't put grace there, he found it there. God is a gracious God before Noah ever showed up. And God in his grace looked down and saw the sinfulness of man and he saw Noah and he called Noah to himself and he said, hey, I want you to build an ark and he said, I want you to warn the people and for a hundred years Noah preached and warned the people of the judgment that was coming. And at the end of that time, there's a beautiful picture here that he's painting and as I said in the first hour that I want to remind you of, when we read the Bible, we don't read the Bible from the beginning to the end. We read the Bible from the end to the, to the beginning. Because we know the end of the story. We know about the cross. We know about the resurrection. We know about all these things. And so we look back into the Old Testament and we see these things differently than even the men who are walking through them saw them. Somebody said this of the Old Testament, it is a dimly lit but well-furnished room. It's well furnished, but it's dimly lit. And as you're looking into the Old Testament, you may not see everything that is there until you take the light of the gospel and you shine it back into the Old Testament. And now you begin to see that there's so many beautiful pictures of the gospel here. We go back to the Garden of Eden and we see Adam and Eve giving a promise that the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. That is a beautiful piece of furniture that is dimly lit until you understand the cross. <clears throat> Noah's Ark, another piece of furniture, pointing to something. Noah's Ark was built to save those who would be under the judgment of God. God's judgment was being poured out, and there was only one way into the Ark. And by the way, there's only one way into salvation, that's Jesus Christ. There's no other way. It's only through Jesus Christ. And everyone who came into the ark would be saved from the wrath that was coming. And by the way, anyone who enters into Christ Jesus in that personal relationship with him, saved from their sin, they too were saved from the wrath to come. And just as the ark took on the waves and the waves pounded upon the hull of the ark, so God's judgment fell upon Jesus Christ and you and I go free. And so this picture here, and he then says to Noah after the ark took place, and Noah comes out, we have almost a restart. The earth is fresh now. There's no population on the earth, and he says to, uh, to Noah, hey, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. 
go do this. But what happens with Noah? He's not just a few years out of the ark, and we find sin coming right back in and corrupting mankind, and we see the Tower of Babel, and they refuse God's rule, they refuse God's plan, and they do their own thing. And sin again brings destruction, and Adam couldn't keep it, and Noah couldn't keep it, Noah's descendants couldn't keep it, and so God calls another man to himself. And a man named Abraham steps on the scene. And he says, Abraham, in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. I've got a plan that I'm going to do with you. And he said, I'm going to raise you up to be a mighty nation, Abraham. And through your seed, every nation on the earth is going to be blessed through what I'm doing in you. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he steps out and begins to lead his family. And of course, Abraham sins. And his descendants, they sin. And then they find themselves down in, the, in Egypt land. And God raises up a man named Moses and gives them a law. And yet the people of Israel couldn't keep the law. He promised them one day they would have a land. And he puts them in this land called Israel now. And he gave them a place. And then he raises up a king to set over them. And he says to David, David, I'm going to be uh, your God, you will be my people, and I'm going to promise you there will always be a king to sit upon your throne. You see these promises unfolding. Adam and Eve, decked back there, by your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Abraham, your seed will bless all nations of the earth. David, your seed will one day rule and reign, and there will be a kingdom where there is no end. And yet each of these men failed to keep what God had given them. And each man failed. And David's descendants after him, they failed God. And they did not follow God. And they abandoned God's rule. And they abandoned God's place. Even to the point where God removed them from their land. And they gave their land to another people and sent them into captivity. And the prophets would stand and say, hey, you didn't obey God. And you've been a stiff-necked people. And you've been a rebellious people. And you disobeyed him all the way down through history. And yet... God's hand is stretched out still to you. God's still not done. He still has a purpose, and he's trying to reunite them. And then we see 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped on the scene. And everything that Adam failed, Jesus succeeded at. And everything that Noah failed at, Jesus succeeded at. And everything that Abraham failed, Jesus succeeded at. And everything that David failed at, Jesus succeeded at. And he steps onto the scene as the one who is calling people to himself now. And he says, I am the rock upon which the church is founded. This is that history or that flow of what God is doing. He's laying out a purpose and so here's the thing I want you to see redemption was never a second thought with God God didn't look at Adam in the garden of Eden and say Adam you sinned what am I going to do now no it was God's purpose all along to unfold his plan of redemption and to paint it across the pages of history and to show what he was doing all along and God working his plan of redemption shows his glory throughout all ages so we see this plan unfolding for us. Last week, Pastor Caleb unpacked for us that the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, the Spirit seals us. God created man for his glory and for his good, and yet man walked away. Man did not do what he should have done. God's purposes, though, were laid out for us all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, you can see God saying, hey, I have a purpose, not just for Israel, but for all nations of the earth. Remember what he promised Abraham? 
Abraham, in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Look with you real quick to Isaiah chapter 42. I want you to see it. And I think you could take Isaiah 42 and in your spare time at home, marry it to Ephesians chapter 1 that Pastor Caleb preached us through last week. And you can see the work of redemption laid out in Isaiah 42 that is mirrored in Ephesians chapter 1. Look what he says in chapter 42, verse 1. The first thing we see is the triune work of God. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is doing the work of redemption. Behold my servant, that's Jesus, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. You know, the greatest culmination of judgment in all of human history was the cross. It was at the cross that judgment was perfected and justice was satisfied. And he's promising that that will take place. Here's what he says in verse 2. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break nor a smoking flax he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith the Lord God, he that created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, he has spread forth the earth that was, cometh out of it, and he hath given bread unto the people upon it, and the spirit to, that, in them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness. Notice that word called. We see that in Ephesians 1. And will uphold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee a covenant of the people for a light to the Gentiles. God was calling Gentiles to himself even in the Old Testament. It was not a part of an addition to the plan or a second thought. It was part of his plan all along. He raised up a nation for his glory with the intention of bringing a Messiah through that nation who in that Messiah would call all nations of the earth to himself. Verse number 7, he tells us what he does. We can rejoice in this to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison and from them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. What is he saying? The redemption of man to the glory of God. He is doing his work, redeeming man for his glory. And he lays this whole beautiful plan out before them. So Isaiah 42 bears it out. Adam didn't keep it, Abraham didn't keep it, Moses didn't keep it, David didn't keep it, but in Jesus, all of this is a yes. Jesus kept it all. Jesus did it exactly right. We see that parallel unfolded. Now, Isaiah 53 is another passage. We won't turn there right now, but if you know the story of Isaiah 53, we see the suffering Savior in Isaiah 53. He bore our grief. He bears our sorrow. By his stripes we are healed. And literally we see him being pierced and beaten for our sins. We see him being crucified and risen for our sins. And all of this is on display in the Old Testament. And again, if you're in the Old Testament and you're living through that time, you have a dimly lit room with well-furnished room. But now we look back from the Old Testament, looking from the cross back into it, and we're like, oh, I know who he was talking about. He was talking about Jesus in Isaiah 53. I know he was talking about, and he was talking about Jesus back there in the Garden of Eden. There's so many pictures here. Bear with me just for a second. I didn't share this with the first service, so this one's free for you guys. Bear with me. I need you to, to think for a second. He said the seed of woman would rise up. <laughs> 
biologically we understand a woman does not have seed. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of a woman without the aid of a man birthing a child that would crush the head of a serpent. Powerful picture. One day, a woman, a virgin, conceived a child of the Holy Spirit, and that son crushed the head of a serpent. See, this was not God's second thought. This was his purpose all along. He was unfolding his plan throughout history. And now we come to this passage here, that by the time of Christ, though, that many uh, in the day that they lived in, when Jesus comes on the scene, they had reduced the vision of the Messiah down, not to somebody who was going to redeem the world or call the nations to himself, but they reduced him down to simply a local savior, one that was saving Israel and would only redeem Israel and primarily would throw off Roman oppression. They weren't looking for a savior to do more than that. We've seen that in our study of Mark. We've seen that unpacked. Even though the nations had lost sight of this, God never lost sight of it. God was unfolding his plan all along. It was always his purpose to raise up a people to himself through his son. This is not a new idea, but rather it has always been his plan through scripture. Now I want you to see another passage of scripture, Galatians. If you're in Ephesians, Galatians just a few pages back, Galatians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go there. We'll put it up on the screen if you don't have one. Galatians 3, 16. The Apostle Paul is making a theological argument. What do we mean by theological? It's the study of God, okay? He's trying to give us to understand who God is and what God is doing. And so uh, he's making this argument, and he's going he's to turn this argument on one letter. One letter in this verse is the turn of the argument. Now, now listen to this, if you would. Verse number 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. You remember that? We looked at that earlier. We talked about it, that Abraham, in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And we could go back to the Old Testament. We can unfold that for you and see how God promised him that he was going to make a covenant with Abraham. And he did make that covenant with Abraham. But here's the interesting thing. When he made the covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep. Because he said to Abraham, I don't need your help to make this covenant come to pass. So Abraham, you go to sleep, I'm going to make the promises, and we're going to accomplish it. And God's bringing it to pass. He said to Abraham, his seed were the promises made. Look what he says next, we're in verse 16. He saith, to, and to, he saith not, and to seeds as many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. When he was promising to bless all nations of the earth, he was not promising that the nation of Israel would be the means by which every nation was blessed. He was promising that the fruit of Abraham, the seed, singular, which is Christ, would bless all nations of the earth. That's where he was promising the blessing to come from. Was not to seeds plural, but to seed singular, the offspring. We could use the word offspring, and it would not be an injustice here. It was the offspring, not the offsprings. It's not the multitude of people, but the one, Christ, that would do that work. So it's always been his plan to redeem them. You see, though, if he's calling a people to himself, you cannot have a holy group of people unless you have holy people in the group. So that means God has to do a work individually in each of us. 
and does it work corporately with us? So as God is calling a group of people together, God doesn't just say, hey, that group over there, he says, hey, you and you and you and you and you, and you remember the day you were called? You remember the day that the gospel came to where you were, and you realized you were a sinner needing a savior, and you awakened to that reality, and your heart was convicted of your sin, and he brought you into the family of God, and what a day of redemption it was. And he calls us individually. So let's see if Ephesians can give some light to us on this. Ephesians chapter number 2 now. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to move as quickly as I can through this, and I want you to, to think quickly with me, all right? I know we're covering a lot of territory. Bear with me. Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to tell us three things that we're going to see in verses 1 through 10. What we were, what we are, and what is our purpose now, I want you to see those three things, all right? Number one, verse number one, and you hath he quickened who were dead. What were we? What were we, church? We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince and power of the air, that's the devil, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our lifestyle in times past, in the lust of our flesh, filling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Understand that you were a sinner by nature, not by nurture. You were born into sin. I was born into sin. You see, here's the thing you got to understand, is that when I became a part, when I was born, I was born into Adam's family. I have Adam's heritage, he is my father, and guess what, I have his sin nature on the inside of me. But 2,000 years ago, another family tree sprung up, and Jesus Christ was born, and now I've been placed in Christ, and I have a new father. No longer am I of my father, Adam, I have a new father, and I have an elder brother, that is Jesus Christ. And we say it something like this, you need to be regenerated or regened. I need a new DNA strand, Amen. I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually. I'm no longer a part of Adam's family, I'm a part of Christ's family. I have a new, I have a new family now. I've been born again. This is the picture that we're laying out for us, but we were dead. We followed the world's course, we followed Satan's course, we followed our own course. But he says in verse number four, let's just look if you could, and he says, uh, verse number three, he said, we had our conversations in time past. We have filled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Look, verse, the first two words of chapter, of verse number four are my favorite, but God. Aren't you glad God stepped in? Friend, there was nothing you could do, there was nothing I could do, but God. God stepped in on the pages of human history, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. You know, I'm glad he doesn't just say he's merciful and he loved us. But Paul decides to embellish this a little bit, and he said, God, who is rich in mercy, with his great love, wherewith he loved us. And he paints this picture of a God who was willing to save and longing to save, and he comes down to where we were, and he says, even when we were dead, I didn't have to fix things before I came to God. When I was dead, in sins, he hath quickened us together. So what has he done? The word quicken means to be made alive. What were we, church? We were, we have been made alive. We were dead in our sins. We have been made alive in Christ. We've been made something new now. Old things are passed away. All things are become new, the scripture tells us. 
And he tells us in verse number seven, he said that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That as the ages to unfold, God will put his grace on display. I don't know all that heaven's gonna be, but I think part of what heaven's gonna be is seeing the grace of God woven through history, bringing the gospel to where we were and calling us to him. It's gonna be an amazing picture of God's grace on display throughout the ages. Verse number eight and nine, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is not something you and I are earning, this is something that has been given to us by grace through faith. Friend, if you think you can be good enough to earn heaven, you don't understand how sinful you really are. We are sinners before a holy God in need of someone not just to give us a foot boost into heaven. We need somebody to take something that was dead and make it alive. And I only know one that's conquered the grave. That's Jesus Christ. And he's given us life. But by the way, he's done so for a purpose. Look in verse number 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Here's the thing. You were created for a purpose for his glory. He's created a work that you're supposed to walk in. Now let me just ask you, were you created for a purpose, yes or no? I mean, you individually. I'm not talking about your family. I'm not talking about the people on your pew. I'm talking about you individually. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that could sit in this auditorium this morning were you created for a purpose. You absolutely were created for a purpose. Now, we, we could tell people all day long, will you be anything you want to be? You can do anything you want to do? No, you can do what God created you to do, and that's what you should do. And here's the reality of it. God made you for a purpose, and that purpose is fulfilled in his glory and in your good, and all of that is laid out in his plan. But here's the thing. God didn't create you individually in an isolation either. He also has placed us in a group. And inside the church of God, there's some things corporately true about us as well. Inside the fact that you and I are Gentiles, unless you're born a Jew, and that's your national heritage, and where you, your family tree leads you back there, you're a Gentile. And so what, what, is, what, what is true corporately about us Gentiles? Well, let's look what he says here. He gives us the same three things, what we were, what we are, and what is our purpose. Look what he says in verse 11. Wherefore, remember that being in time past, uh, and then in time past, Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. This term circumcision began to be synonymous with being a Jew. It was their boasting rights. This is who we are. You're the uncircumcised Gentiles. As a matter of fact, when David confronts Goliath on the battlefield, he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. He was not being PC when he said that. He was trying to be as rude as he possibly could by calling him that. And when the Jews looked at Gentiles, they didn't see them favorably. As a matter of fact, you remember when Jesus sat by the well with the Samaritan woman who was half Jew and half Gentile? She looked at him and said, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They don't even talk to us. And yet we see Jesus regularly reaching outside and telling us what his purposes are. Matter of fact, if you were to go and read the genealogy of Christ, you know what you're going to find in that genealogy? Gentiles. 
Gentiles that God brought into the family because God was telling us that he was going to be a light to the Gentiles, that he had a purpose for them. And he said, but you were Gentile, you were uncircumcised. And it was meant to be a derogatory term. It was meant to say you were filthy and unclean. Verse number 12, look what he describes us as. All of the Gentiles, all of us on the outside looking in, he said that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. How many of you feel good about yourself now? It's kind of like, oh my word. I mean, you're going to keep on hammering me down here. You were without God in the world. But verse number 13, but now... But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. I'm not made nigh by my good works. I'm made nigh by the fact that Christ died for my sins, was buried and rose again, and he called me to himself. We are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Man, I love that. He is our peace. You see, Adam couldn't bring peace. He brought division. Noah couldn't even bring peace. The Tower of Babel wasn't about bringing peace. Abraham couldn't bring peace. David couldn't bring peace. The prophets couldn't bring peace. But there was one who came on the scene, and he not only brought peace, he is our peace. He brought peace, and you read Ephesians, this chapter right here, three things it says about him. He brought peace, he made peace, and he preached peace. He did all three things. And Jesus Christ stands in the middle of this moment, and he is our peace, and he is making of twain one new. Look what he says in verse 14. He is our peace who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. The picture here is that the Jew and the Gentile weren't allowed to fellowship, and even in the temple court, there was a place divided up to where only the Gentiles could go only so far. But when Jesus came in, you know what he did? He tore down the walls between, and he welcomes everybody in. And he says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he welcomes us into the family. So this peace was made in Christ. So we were strangers, but now we've been brought nigh. This is what he did. We were without Christ. We were aliens. We were without hope. But now in Christ we have been brought nigh. In Christ we are seated at the same table. Verse number 16 that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to them which were afar off and to them which are nigh. Now get this next verse. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, only through Christ do both Jew and Gentile have access by one spirit unto the Father. If you were to read through the Gospels, see how many times they claimed the Father God as their father, and they would say, you're of your father, the devil, Jesus said. The only way to have God be your father is through Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile, both come in the same door. So then, why is he doing this? He's doing it, verse number 19, therefore we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. There's the picture right there. This is where we come down to what Jesus is doing in the work of redemption is that he's calling a people to himself and he's making them the household of God. 
And that's why the church could never be a building. It can never be an institution. It always has to have the people of God to be the household of God. It is this family that has come together. He said in verse number 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are built together for a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. This settled place that God has placed us together. And as we come together, we do so not for our glory, but for his glory. And so this purpose that God has laid out from the beginning of time all the way to where we stand today, we understand that God has done it for his glory. And he's calling a people of every nation and language and tribe and tongue. And he's calling them to do themselves. And it will all resound to the glory of God. So we have a work to do. We tell people of God's peace. We tell, God, tell them of God's purpose. Gentiles now are fellow heirs. That's the mystery. The mystery they didn't understand is how are the Gentiles going to get in? Jesus. Abraham, in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. The Gentiles will be brought in through Jesus Christ. And now we see that on display. What do we see? We see the church from every nation and tribe and tongue all around the world and throughout the last 2,000 years proclaiming the message of Jesus saves. This is the work of the church. This is the mystery that is And we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why do we do it? Turn to chapter 3 and verse 21. Let's read verse 20 just because it's good. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And he says, here it is on display. What is the church doing? Bringing glory to God in all ages. See, what is more glorifying to God than to take a bunch of rotten sinners like us and make us his children? And then taking that group of rotten sinners and putting them together and we love one another. That's a miracle, folks. When you take Ephesians 1, 2, 3, he's taken those three chapters and he's laid down how we get into the family and then 4, 5, and 6 tells us how to behave now that we're in the family. And 4, 5, and 6, the first thing he says in verse number 4 is endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What is he saying? Put up with people. And he's saying get over yourself and put up with people. He's saying, put up with annoying people because we're in the bond of peace. Here's the thing. You need to remember what you were if you have a hard time getting along with somebody. Because if we remember that we were sinners, it makes it a whole lot easier to get along with sinners. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm putting you together for my glory because it's an unlikely union. It's an unlikely thing that God could call people from all walks of life and all languages and background and put them together in one family and they love one another and they shout the glory of God together and the devil has to sit back in eternity and go, how does that happen? Because it doesn't make any sense. In the early church, he said this, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that was like the theme verse for our youth department when I was a kid. Um, You'll get that later. Uh, but the, uh, so the um, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this is something that later on the church fathers found it being very abused, and they put some restrictions upon it. Uh, but early on, the picture was here, what you had is you had a master who owned land and had prestige and power. 
and a slave who had no authority and no position and no wealth coming in and sitting down at the same table, worshiping the same Lord, having no difference between the two of them. And can you picture that master leaning down and kissing the cheek of the slave? Can you picture what that would have looked like to the world on the outside? What in the world is going on? Masters and slaves are made equal? What's happening? And God is being glorified in this picture of God drawing a people to himself. Last thing I want you to get. Go back to Ephesians 2 real quick. This is the picture. This is the point of the application I want to make today. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. The word workmanship means to be made. It's the same root word as poem. Um, I, years ago, I tried to write some poetry. And no, you can't read it. Um, but I tried to write some poetry. And it's, it's, it's definitely some work. And you try to make that thing work and rhyme and you put all it together. The word here is literally, you are his poetry. That he is forming a poem. Here, here's the thing. When God created you, he created you for a purpose and he's writing on the pages of your life a poem of redemption. And you individually were created for that purpose and God is writing your story throughout your life and you're seeing it unfold as he writes the poem of your life that says that Jesus saves. And it's a wonderful picture. And when you look throughout the time of history, from the garden to the present day, what do we see? <clears throat> we see God putting together a tapestry of grace. And he's laying together a quilt work of grace. And then God does, in the culmination of it all, is he takes all the poems, your poem and my poem and your poem and your poem, and he takes them all together from every walk of every life, and he puts them all together, and guess what they do? When they come together, they rhyme. Because they have one theme, Jesus, to the glory of God. And all of those poems come together. All of those stories come together, and one day, when all this is over, one day, and by the way, I believe Jesus is going to come again. I believe he's coming back, and he's going to call all of us to himself, and one day we're going to see on display the church gathered, not just in the time we live, but through all ages, every man that's ever confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord, he's going to call them all together, and there's going to be a choir like has never been done before, and it will resound to the glory of God, and we will say together, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And we'll look back through the pages of history and see that God, it was not a second thought with him, but it was his purpose all along as he made both Jew and Gentile one and placed us together. Folks, we have a big work to do. See, there's an individual work and there's a corporate work. And God has given us a wonderful privilege. You see, here's the thing. When God chose you and God ordained that work for you, that is not a reason for you to be puffed up. Because God's given you a work to do and made you for a purpose, it's not a reason for me to go, God made me for a purpose, better than all you other guys. No, that's a reason for me to take great responsibility and care in how I walk today because God made me for a purpose. God helped me find that purpose and pursue it with everything that I am. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to lay these truths out this morning. And what I pray, Father, that something would grip our heart, hold of our hearts today.
and would do a work in us and through us. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in me that only you can do. Do a work in your people that only you can do. Stir us now for your glory. In his precious name. Let's stand.